0: Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what we do at Kung Fu Podcast, and I'm your host, Seafood, T.W. Smith. Thank you so much for joining me today, this very wet day here in North Carolina. It's been raining quite a bit, and this particular program may be a little bit delayed going out just because it has been taking... I don't know, three to four times more creative driving than it ever does to get around town here lately. Uh, Flooding in different areas has uh, really required some reroutes and nothing quite like that during rush time to help you figure out, you know, patience. This is a puzzle problem uh, or is this an obstacle problem? Hmm, I have to think about that. Um, If this is your first time here to Kung Fu Podcast, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. And I can also say without a shadow of a doubt, some of the most intelligent folks you're ever going to run into as well. And one of those committed and intelligent martial artists is the focus of this particular episode, Professor Samantha May and her research on the native language of the Okinawan karate and kabuto. And how did the natural language of the Okinawan people begin to disappear? out of their martial arts and as well as out of their lives. There were four punishments that were used to persuade Okinawans to stop using their language and why they would have been shot on the spot for using it. You're gonna hear Professor May explain why there must be two things that exist in order for the language to stay alive. And as the language was diminishing, you're gonna hear about how it begins to separate the generations, not just in martial arts and in the dojos, but across the culture and in families. Professor May is also going to explain why the Okinawans at the time were ready to toss out their native language, even out of the martial arts. And where is that language now? At the end of the interview, I'm going to have a couple of questions that are more or less curiosity questions. I'm also going to give you a list of the incredible number of free downloads that are going to come along with this podcast. Thanks To Dr. Samantha May. I hope you're ready, get yourself settled in, or let's go for a walk. But here is the interview with Professor Samantha May and the language of the Okinawan karate and kabuto. During the process, I have not done a whole lot of research as far as uh, you know, some of your background, besides what I ran into as far as on your Facebook page. Right. So I'm going to ask you some, because I wanted to, I kind of wanted to experience getting to know you and your work at the same time as the audience does. Sure. Okay. What, oh, because I always catch, catch a little smack around for pronunciation. So I just want to ask you, I looked up, I found 17 different pronunciations for Uchinaguchi
1: yeah it, um I believe Uchi na Gucci Naguchi na Gucci Naguchi yeah. yeah it's it's a long a in the middle that's all. Uchi na
0: Naguchi yeah. na okay I'll be practicing that let's get ready to get started we'll just kind of roll right into it do you would you like me to address you as uh, Samantha professor may how 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 would you like for me to
1: um that's totally fine if you just keep you know addressing me as Samantha that's good yeah okay. Yeah, because honestly, I, I'm, I'm new to the uh, professor gig, so I think there will still be moments where people say, students will say, professor in the classroom, and I will not remember that that's me, so mm-hmm. <laughs> that okay. I should well, look at them, yeah, yeah. so uh, just Samantha is fine,
0: yeah. Okay, we're getting ready to have our interview with Professor Samantha May, whose article I ran across while I was doing research on identity with uh, dr kevin tan and few other folks that we've had previous podcasts on the article i ran across was titled language learning and the revitalization through the martial arts uchinaguchi karate and Kobudo in okinawa and abroad and it, was that, that that was your dissertation yeah that's
1: right
0: well fantastic yes that's right i wanted to kind of give you a preface of why i got in touch with you to begin with And I had several podcasts where we had done, Dr. Adam Franks had done some research in the late 1990s, early 2000s. His dissertation was Tai Chi Tuan and the Search for the Little Old Chinese Man. And in it, he was finding the identity that through the martial arts, how one finds themselves through the martial arts. And particularly in his case as an ethnographic study, uh, his research was a lot more about how other people identify themselves through the martial arts and then how he began to identify himself through the martial arts. And we had Dr. Kevin Tan on about a year ago uh, where he had done an ethnographic ethnographic study on in Canada on mm-hmm. finding your identity through aikido. So uh, when Okay, I, interesting. So That's when I had and I had t- both of those podcasts were those were probably like six podcasts altogether. But uh, after I finished that, I had uh, ran across a research a thesis by a young lady named Melissa Tomlinson. And her title of it was The Influence of Identity oh. of Language Use by Bicultural Youth in Okinawa. And her thesis, her thesis in there right. uh, really, you know, stimulated my thoughts. And then I did a little bit more research. And then here I am talking with you.
1: Right, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, Melissa Tomlinson, yeah, she was my classmate at the University of the VQ, so, yeah, so let's, that's kind of cool that you're, you're yeah, you've seen her research, yeah, um, okay, okay, well, that, that puts it in perspective, did did you, um, how did you find the, uh, theses, anyway?
0: You know, I'll, I can't remember if I found it through, um, I'm a member of several academic sites that I, I will go through oh, and dig okay. around. Uh, I also uh, uh, dig through about five other research bases and databases for different researchers studies. Then, of course, I always just basically follow the cookie crumbs, you know, where I run across one research right. study and just follow the references till I find this golden opportunity to talk to someone like yourself. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, Samantha, let me let me first ask you and, and tell you a little bit about Kung Fu podcast. You know, uh, it always starts that we're exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts, and I take that pretty seriously because uh, it, martial arts had done all that for me when I was learning it, and uh, and helped me kind of find my way when I was a big mess up. But um, when I started looking at this research, it was more about the impact of martial arts and your work. Uh, again being associated with Okinawan studies, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned that you do practice martial arts, correct? Or you did practice
1: martial arts? Yes. Oh, I do I do still, yes.
0: Okay. So the audience, you know, the of uh, this program are some fine martial artists literally around the world. Uh, so I'm excited that they get to hear someone like yourself who's a practicing martial artist and someone who's researched it and then actually using it as a way to to carry something else forward. Uh, what what got you started in the martial arts to begin with?
1: Um, basically, when I was 14, we had a fire hall. Like for the, the first time in my tiny hometown of a 1,000 people of East Sook on Vancouver Island, we finally had a fire hall built in um, when I was 12, because people's houses kept burning down because the, the fire department couldn't get to them. So in that place was a community center and they had a karate program. And it was, you know, there was really nothing out that way. And uh, my dad said, hey, let's do karate. It's $15 a month and it's just down, you know, at the fire hall. So I started doing it uh, from there. Hmm. So I started when I was 14 and it was uh, Okinawan martial arts you down at the the fire hall, so um, from there, I got interested in martial arts, and um, I actually, I did it from 14 to 16, and then I quit for about eight years, Mm -hmm. and then I got back to it when I was around 24, and then I, I just kind of kept at it since then.
0: Just curiosity, when you started the martial arts the second time, uh, what was the driving force behind it that time? Dad got you started the first time. Um,
1: what- yeah, that's right. I think I, I always wanted to do it again. I just really enjoyed doing it. And uh, when I was 14 or 16, the idea of hitting something was, even like a pad was pretty terrible, but I, for some reason I'd kind of gotten used to that by the time I was 24 and I was totally fine with that contact aspect of of the martial arts and I really liked uh, the kata especially and And then I I started another style uh, shorin view when I was I think 26 and uh, or maybe 20 maybe 25 anyway um, and that had a lot of self-defense and um, Bunkai in it. hmm um, So that, that was another aspect, and that was like a, a whole different side of the picture, and it was really great to do that as well.
0: You know, uh, one of the things I've always known, and it doesn't matter what style of martial arts you practice, at some point in time you find some parts of it very challenging, some aspect of it, you know, like you just mentioned, like hitting something for, for some other people, the patience, uh, you know, the commitment to, uh, yeah. you know, what 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 did you find most difficult Uh, about the martial
1: arts oh I think just um, making the uh, habit of going to the practice Mm. like uh, you know not just once a week or you know as many times as you can like making the time commitment and just going there but I found once I started that once I got into the habit it was an easy habit to keep but then you know other things influences in your life like Mm -hmm. your your boyfriend your kids your job whatever it is those mm-hmm. those things can really disrupt your you know your nice habits that you've built up
0: yeah your routines
1: so, um that's definitely something yeah your, your routines and then, so it's definitely something i'm still uh working on here because i i practice here but not that much so i would really like to practice a lot more than i do now mm. but again with the you know and the family commitments and even the research all of that together leaves uh, not that much time in nope. the rest of the day.
0: I, I, yeah. I totally understand. Uh, so if as you as you went as you went through the martial arts and then of course it if I remember correctly what university did you attend for your uh, doctorate work?
1: For, um so as an undergrad, I went to uh, Douglas College, then Simon Fraser University, and then I went to Okinawa, and I had an opportunity uh, through the Japanese government to go to the well, to go to a Japanese university and do uh, some research, which could turn into a master's and then a doctorate on something to do with Japan. So I thought, okay. Uh, if my research doesn't involve karate, I am never going to see the inside of a dojo. So it's going to involve karate, and uh, you know. And so my master's was about uh, identity, basically answering the question why so many Canadians, in particular, go to Okinawa for martial arts training, like because there we're we're really I'm, I'm Canadian we're really disproportionately uh, represented in martial arts travel. So. Yeah, trying to figure out why that was specifically. I don't know if I did a great job of answering that question, but but I found some answers anyway.
0: Hmm. What was it like to leave Canada and go to Japan? And I'm assuming you went to Japan and then Okinawa, or did you just go straight to Okinawa and go through the processes of being approved and all that other stuff as you go along?
1: Well, um, I went to Japan. I lived there twice, so... The first time was after I graduated from Simon Fraser, and it wasn't, you know, to do graduate studies, it was just to go on the JET program, which is Japan exchange and teaching program for teaching English, uh, you know, in Japan at uh, elementary, uh, middle schools and high schools. And uh, I lived in Osaka city, and I I hunted out the dojo, like uh, that was closest to my style there. And from there, I went down to Okinawa a few times for martial arts trips. And uh, I lived there for three years. Then I moved back to Canada for five years. And then that opportunity came up, the scholarship uh, came up from the Japanese government. And they it worked out really well because they specifically wanted people who had participated in the JET program. So it was perfect.
0: So you had a yeah. small, yeah, that's, that's excellent. And so I, I just have to ask you, uh, uh, so you get out there, you you've, you know you're putting in your uh, request and trying to get into you know into position to get this scholarship. Did you have to show them your karate at all in order to uh, to like? Did you have to do something in order to prove that it, it, it would be worth their while to invest that kind of time and effort in you? Um,
1: you mean as far as the, the Japanese, as far as the scholarship went?
0: Yeah, I mean when you when when you well, get, get out there.
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's actually it's a. Um, so going down there the first time, there was actually my sensei, uh, Sensei Frank Clayton from, he was uh, operating out of New West and Maple Ridge, which are near Vancouver, and he was going down there with a bunch of students. So I went down there and I met him, so that was kind of my in, into the, the dojo the first time. And, uh, anyway, but as far as the scholarship goes, um... So I'd written this proposal, and it was sitting on somebody's desk in the consulate, the Japanese consulate in Vancouver. And that the Shorin dojo was on the weekends. and uh, I wasn't going to go because it was just kind of a busy week. But then my my husband comes home and says, uh, "You have to go to the dojo this weekend because the deputy consulate general of Japan is coming to see you there." Oh like, wow! Okay, all right then. So I guess <laughs> I better up, go. Brush up. So. <laughs> so, yeah. So I so I went, and uh, he was there, and his his friend was with him also. And um, you know, we didn't know who his friend was exactly, but you know, another Japanese fellow. So, and then we found out that his his friend was um, uh, Akira Akira Sato, so the founder of Karate Federation BC. So basically, almost all of the dojos in my province have to belong to that organization to get insurance. Mm. So, yeah, so they, they came and they watched the practice and they gave some some speeches about, you know, how they really appreciated what they saw at the dojo. And and then the uh, Mr. Muto, who's the deputy consulate, hello, uh, invited. It was an open invitation to everybody because we shared the space. It was at that time in North Vancouver with an Aikido dojo. And he said, oh, you know, it would be great if if you guys can come to my office in the consulate any time and we can just have have a chat at you presumably about martial arts and things like that Mm because everybody all martial artists like to talk about martial arts i think (laughs) so yeah uh but i i don't think anybody else took him up on that but i did and i went and i saw him in his office a few times (laughs) and uh, it was it was a lot of fun it was it was great yeah he was a really interesting fellow really um committed to doing uh Development projects in develop like developing countries uh, because he was basically a diplomat and and sent to various postings for two to three years at a time by the government. Mm. So that was uh, that was a whole a whole can of worms. So, <laughs> so, so when
0: you you leave Canada, you go to live in Okinawa. Yeah. Was there was there any anything that really stuck out for in your memory as far as a cultural challenge?
1: Oh, okay. So at that at that point, right? So after after I met with this consulate general fellow and I did get the scholarship and went there, I'd, I'd been to Japan before, uh, as I said, living in Osaka City and Okinawa is different, but it's enough like other parts of Japan and I, I didn't I didn't really find like it was a cultural challenge. I found it maybe easier, I think, because. Uh, uh, it seemed like the Okinawans were more accepting of like non-Okinawan cultures and people than they are on the mainland So I'd say that that part was kind of easier mm. um, Adjusting to you know the, the school culture that was different. So We had different expectations for school, but it was it was more like uh, Paperwork challenges and than anything really mm. difficult Yeah, and then and then my family um, my family background is partly asian as well so there's a lot of overlap i would say between different asian cultures so hmm. yeah so that was that was okay too yeah. okay
0: and I, I can tell you you obviously ha- were not facing a barrier by language you you speak
1: japanese um yeah it's kind of it's a pretty it's not that great, honestly. It's, uh, and I'm not being modest at all. Like it's really, it's really not that great. It's, it's about intermediate level. Okay. So there are people who can speak it much, much better than I can, for sure. And it's something that you know I would really like to improve. But in a way, having that sort of mm, kind of mediocre level is has served me pretty well because people during the interviews, which I had to conduct in Japanese a lot of the time, <laughs> it's pretty clear when you don't understand something. <laughs> so, so people end up, uh, they end up explaining something much more than they would if you appear to get it completely okay. um, right away. So,
0: You know, yeah. I, I don't know how, how much different it is in Japanese or Uchinaguchi, but uh, the in the Chinese a lot of times it, it used to amaze me that i would read something or look at something in chinese writing and it would be let's say 12 characters right yeah and then to translate it into english was like four paragraphs
1: okay right yeah because, because I would a, lot,
0: a lot of yeah. times it was they, they they would say things like you'll move your body as if you're reeling silk but that didn't i mean oh. you know so when they would, they would say something like that You had to understand what reeling, moving, and thinking like reeling silk was, but since the English, you know, and and, you know, it meant nothing to to someone like me when I first began. So, you know, trying to actually say, okay, this is the mechanics of what that means, this is the sensations. And when you actually feel it and you're actually going through, uh, let's say like a flow drill and you're trying to move through and things feel smooth and you're, you can sense what's happening and moving into the next place, then you understand what moving like reeling silk is and the two characters is all you need. But before it's like a book. So it's like what you were saying before, you have to really expand out on it in order to get down to a simple
1: concept yeah yeah for sure and and you know and having that um that's a definite a benefit to visiting those places where those arts are originally from is is you might get a feel for things like what reeling silk means like you might have the opportunity to just literally see someone reeling silk and then you can kind of go oh okay that's that and that's Mm -hmm. that's the um you know societal and cultural context where those things come from and that's where the art developed. So it's really important to kind of understand these, all of these uh, little aspects of um, daily life that go into the martial arts as well.
0: Well, so I'm gonna segue us now because we've kind of laid the framework around it. When I saw your, your presentation on using the Okinawa language Uchinaguchi as being interwoven into the martial arts as a way to help what I gathered was helping the young folks uh, who seem to be about two generations out, if I got that right, you know, about two generations out uh, from the, from say the grandparents who practiced martial arts or didn't practice martial arts but spoke the the original language there and your effort was to try to use the language in a way so that it was into the martial arts to keep it alive and help these folks find their identity so I'm gonna just hand it off to you and I'd love to hear you know about that work
1: okay so um, I'll, I'll give you some background to that to start out with so as a master's student I had that as a research student I had the idea of Canadian identity and uh, martial arts participation sort of the idea of um, learning kind of in a physical sense so we in the West we tend to think of learning as being with your head and like it's an academic pursuit it doesn't mm-hmm. really involve our bodies but then martial arts and even things like you know tea ceremony or brush painting or whatever when you think about those things those are learning with the body mm. so it's a different kind of modality for learning um, so anyway I was I was there you know working on my Japanese and I had a, a sort of an interest I'd heard about the Okinawan language I didn't know anything about it and I was (laughs) kind of limited as to what classes I could take in my schedule because my husband worked at night and so I was concerned about all this so I ended up taking this class in Uchinaguchi and it was so hard because it was taught completely in Japanese and (laughs) I'm like Uchinaguchi (laughs) in Japanese and uh, and we had to translate this Uh, we we watched some video of them performing the um, like Kumi Odori, like the theater, the Okinawan National Theater. It's in Uchinaguchi, and these these people are, you know, doing the play on a stage, and and we had to translate that. We had a little package, and like, okay, now translate this into, you know, standard Japanese. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, so but I got to realize from learning about, you know, some really basic things about Uchinaguchi that hey, wait a second, you know, okay, so this is a separate language. It's not a dialect of Japanese, as people say. Japanese is not the parent language, just they're sister languages, and they're separate. They're like Spanish and Portuguese, or German and English, or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, So the speakers can't understand each other. So anyway, uh, I came to realize, okay, so Okinawan martial arts was obviously developed in Okinawa, but in my dojo I don't think I hear any uchinaguchi at all so if that's the case then why is that so I started to realize that some dojos yes they used a few words but my my dojo they really didn't use any and um, so I I went digging a bit further and I you know I, d- I started doing the I did a Directed studies project as a master's student on like starting to compile the Uchinaguchi martial arts lexicon And one of the professors um, Uechi sensei he he was a shorin practitioner So I could ask him and he was fluent in Uchinaguchi so I could ask him and he could just translate a lot of these uh, Terms and he could he remembered the moves even though I didn't practice anymore He remembered the moves well enough to you know sort of give me a bit of a demo as well and um And then that got, you know, I was thinking, okay, I finished my master's, what am I going to do for the the PhD or to even apply for the PhD? And so I had rooftop gardens that could be used as martial arts spaces, Mm -hmm. or I had this uchinaguchi in uh, Okinawan martial arts. And my supervisor said, yeah, do that, do the uchinaguchi in martial arts. So I, I did that. I I thought of the idea of people are talking about with endangered languages, uh, there's no space there's no place to use them and I you know in person heard this conversation which gets repeated all over the place in countries around the world because it's all the same the world over in any indigenous group of people they've actually probably all got a martial art to mm-hmm. come to think of it. but mm-hmm. they've got a language and the language has been um, replaced with the, the language of the new dominant uh, group in that area so it's all tied together with land and language and culture but Okinawa is kind of unique in that 75 to 90% of the people who live in Okinawa are actually kind of ethnically Okinawan. Mm. And nobody tracks this, right? This is not they're just Japanese for all, all intents and purposes as as a census goes, but but it's having that that Okinawan cultural background that goes back uh, 30,000 years. Wow. You know, that's long that group has been there in those islands. It's it's something kind of important,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: So the area of study for for this PhD program was um hikakuchiki bunka or uh, comparative regional culture and area studies okay. so we didn't really compare anything <laughs> like okay. my comparative literature you know uh, but it was it had to be something about Okinawa and focused on communication or language so this idea of people not being able to use their language and having conversations where a kid would say to their parent, Oh, Hey mom, I want to, I'd like to learn Uchinaguchi. And, and the parent would say most of the time, what do you want to learn that for? Mm. You know, where are you going to use it? Right? Because school is in Japanese. Uh, everything is in Japanese. So you know, they don't need it. You
0: know, uh, if I remember correctly, it was either in one of the research articles, I'd know- it was outlawed to speak it for a while. You know, that it's some that at some point or basically you would be reprimanded or punished if you weren't speaking Japanese. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right. As far as um, the legality of it, I believe that I I can't give you specifics on this, but I believe the language of the schools was officially Japanese. And Mm. um, so there there was some variation, but a lot of schools were just like, um, you know, other areas in the world where if you spoke that Uchinaguchi, you would be punished with either, there were a whole bunch of different punishments. Um, one, a taxi driver actually told me this. He said one of them was you had to you had to fill up two buckets of water and you had to stand with your arms outstretched holding these buckets of water for an entire period outside of the school gates. So everyone would see that you're being punished. Mm. And another one was um, they'd stick a broom handle uh, underneath the knees and then make you sit in Seiza. So as wow. you know, this is a good way to dislocate knees if you do it really fast. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and they'd have to sit like that for a whole period. And there was the Hogan Fuda. That's a really famous one, which is like, um, a plaque that it was the dialect plaque. So if you got caught speaking Uchinaguchi, you would get this plaque and the only way to get rid of it was to give it to the next person that you could find as a as a you know a little kid speaking uchinaguchi so you could get rid of it and whoever had it at the end of the day would get punished so you know it was really um, pretty devious because it co coopts everybody into this punishment system wow and yet another one was um, they would you would have to write the uchinaguchi on a paper shirt and then wash it and then hang it up in the classroom and it was kind of symbolic of like cleansing yourself of of this oh, language okay. because it, it, it really was viewed to be a backwards uh country dialect of japanese so that's the perspective people are coming from and and the okinawans themselves they weren't victimized they were all for it they were like yeah okay let's get rid of that uchi because it's holding us back the only way to succeed in this new society is to learn perfect standard Japanese. So you saw a lot of pressure, especially on the eldest sons, on learning perfect standard Japanese. And at that time, you know, they didn't know as much as they do now about linguistics and the benefits of bilingualism and how learning more than one language actually makes you smarter. And uh, it not only makes you smarter, but it improves both languages. Mm. So, you know, so people were worried, oh, if they speak, Uchinaguchi, their Japanese is going to be worse. But actually, if they didn't speak Uchinaguchi, the Uchinaguchi and their Japanese would be worse, mm. would be badly. Dead. So, so anyway, there's a lot of kind of sociolinguistic things going on there, and and they they were quite sensible at the time, given the climate. Of course, people would make those choices, right? It's, it's, yeah. So,
0: so as you're saying that, uh, and so for the audience. When did this really get pushed? During the 1960s after World War II? What kind of timeframes are we looking at from this transition of Bikinuchi, Noguchi, then you weren't allowed, and how was this unfolding as far as a timeline?
1: So this is like 30s and 40s. And of course, like the 30s is a pretty dark time in human history, yes, generally. Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Right, it gave birth to a lot of, um, you know, people had science and it gave birth to a lot of dark, dark things. Um, before the war, they, you know, were really uh, pushing against you no know, Uchinaguchi. During the war, if you were caught speaking Uchinaguchi by Japanese soldiers, you could get shot as a spy because they didn't understand it oh. and they thought you, possibly from China or a spy, you know. So, so it was very dangerous there as well. But, but keep in mind, through all this, some of the older people only spoke Uchinaguchi. And and some of them made the decision to not speak to their grandkids, so they wouldn't wreck their chances at perfect Japanese.
0: Oh, I guess uh, now I think about it too: is if, if 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 they didn't speak to the grandchildren, then the grandchild might have a chance of not getting shot. You know, I mean, you know, right? Or right.
1: It, it it makes all all sorts of sense. And there, but then you can see how between the punishments in school and the you know the parents and the grandparents wish to have the kids grow up. And be successful in a Japanese environment,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, they're not going to pass the uchinaguchi on. And and even today, um, there are very few environments where uchinaguchi is useful. So so the whole point of the research was, well, hey, you know, they're not going to teach it in schools anytime soon, probably, um, but they can use it in martial arts practice, mm-hmm. even if. You know moving it would be nice to move towards an immersion environment eventually but um there are very few people who speak it fluently enough or who are willing to conduct a class in uchinaguchi so that's still hard to do but i think there are still some older people who could do it and they they did do it so um my uh sensei and that the Gojiri sensei mebukan sensei in uh, okinawa he remembers his grandfather Teaching people in Ichinaguchi, completely Ichinaguchi, but they said they didn't understand him.
0: Uh, so I got two questions that have come up, pop in my head. First, most of what we're talking about is the spoken language and making sure that you didn't get caught speaking it. And how was it? Was it different as far as the written? Was it? A, was it as? A, was it a character-based language? Was it a uh, letter alphabet type of language?
1: So they didn't have a written language. Um, until they got, they started borrowing Japanese. They borrowed at first some Chinese uh, characters, and then they they also used Hiragana mm. from Japanese. So you know we've got the the Japanese characters, and there's a Chinese reading, there's a Japanese reading, there you know a Mandarin reading, um, maybe Taiwanese reading, but there's also an Uchinaguchi reading. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I saw some of the, some of your examples there on your Facebook. Uh, facebook page and i but I, I didn't pay attention to it and it just occurred to me because in in the chinese you know it didn't matter which dialect you spoke mm-hmm. everything was written the same because right. it wasn't an alphabet and and so i didn't know if that was actually the case if the okinawans had their own written language or but from what you just said for the longest mm-hmm. time it was just an oral
1: language that's right yeah ah. yeah and I don't, I don't know at what point they they got uh, they started using a written language i of course they were a tributary kingdom they were independent and they were a tributary kingdom of china so presumably they had some records kept in probably chinese mm. and then after you know you got the satsuma coming in uh later and and they probably brought the hiragana
0: mm. so using the martial arts and when you say you can use the uchinaguchi in the martial arts uh, i think mostly most of your references were like into shirite or Nahate or something along those lines.
1: Yeah, yeah, you you can use those those things for gojiri or Shorin-ryu. Yeah, Shuri or naha.
0: Okay. Because yeah. I, I didn't know if it, if having the shirite type of uh, martial art with the language, I it, mean, it'd be such a corporeal type of experience of having that embodiment of the martial arts as you spoke about earlier with the language of the martial arts, the expectations. Uh, is that happening now in places is that what you're trying to get to happen with some of your work and effort
1: yeah it it was already happening um when i you know started doing the research so there already were some dojos i'm sure there are some like many many that i didn't visit that are probably completely in uchinaguchi maybe further in the north um but even in the south in uh, naha <clears throat> there's one of the the uh, bigger dojo groups Kai and Morio um, Higona-sensei, he he uses some Uchinaguchi terms, so chiri, no Chanchan, and Muchimi, and um, Muchi, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're already using them, and those terms have already kind of spread to places like the UK, along with, the you know, where the practitioners are from. Okay. So that's a good development. So they're kind of like, there's a little bit of a basis, and I think there's room to introduce more.
0: Yeah, so I'm gonna have to ask: do, do you have a dictionary or something? So, like, if somebody like myself wanted to see a move, or, or, is there a video, or saying, okay, this is, this is this motion, and this is what it's called in Uchinaguchi, or, or, or how would you, how would someone like myself find a resource to at least get me started?
1: Um, so I've I've got the Okinawan um, Karate and Kabuto Handbook, which is a uh, a book that shows um all of the i call them word sheets that have been done so far so there's a digital copy of that on the um facebook page but i can also send you one and but it it doesn't show the movements it just has kind of like a picture like some of the um some of the pages of it are in the slides of that presentation
0: oh yes i saw that that's what triggered the question uh, yeah,
1: yeah. So, so yeah. So there are, um, I think there are 36 pages total right now. Um, there's a lot possible, and uh, kind of like 60 total in the works. And uh, the plan was to go to Okinawa this summer and continue working on it.
0: So, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you uh, anything that you'll share with me as far as the the language and your work and things along those lines, yeah. I will post it on the website for, for the audience uh, so that when they go to the website to to listen to this particular podcast or as they're hearing me say it now, they'll know that it's there, that there'll be links there for them to download for all those people who've you know, signed up over at the website, they can get the links for it. Uh, and so the booklet would be awesome. I, I'd love to see that myself. And in, in regards to the research of taking the children and then Get, I'm assuming they they were already in the martial arts, and then you started uh, using the Uchinaguchi to help them find their roots or understand their their identities and their ancestral identities a little bit more.
1: Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. I would love to see that happen more, but all we all we managed to do was I distributed that the uh, handbook to a bunch of different dojo and. You know in okinawa and abroad and then the instructors were able to kind of use it however they saw fit in their class okay so what would be great is using that as you say with a uh, really little kids mm-hmm. yeah i mean that but that you know the parents have to be able to speak it and understand it as well for it to really uh take hold and be successful so um one of the best i guess language revitalization programs uh, in the world is Hawaii, and they focused uh, first on the kids, but then also on the um, some other programs, uh, and that one as well on the parents, so they can actually speak to the kids at home because there, there's a lot of literature about immersion programs and, and not being successful because the parents can't speak. Mm. So it's kind of got to be everybody
0: right um, to keep it to keep it to go to, to go
1: together. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's right, multi-generational,
0: yeah. Well, I I know I'm definitely interested in in learning some more about the process of that. Besides the study by Melissa that we had mentioned earlier, in her study it was the influence of identity on language. And in in her findings, she said the study responses showed that these people had complex experience regarding their Japanese and English language use. So she was looking at some of the young folks who were bicultural, and I'm assuming in the way that you stated there, the Okinawans were bicultural, right? They were they were Okinawans, but they were Japanese, and and especially if they were you know 1980s, 1990s, they were definitely bicultural.
1: That that's right. So they're it's kind of a um, a sneaky kind of biculturalism though, because their culture's not entirely recognized. It's like recognized as being bicultural to the point that they're not kind of like not proper or not standard Japanese. <clears throat> so people are like, okay, Okinawa is a bit different from Japan and Okinawa's kind of had to put up with some things that the rest of Japan has not had to put up with, like the, all the American uh, military bases. Mm-hmm. I mean, mind you, some of that is just geography, but, but their train, um, you know, they, because the Americans had control of Okinawa, things like their railways were never rebuilt. They had railways before the war when the Americans were there in, in Okinawa, you know, as an American protectorate, they're using American currency, and the Americans kind of wanted to encourage Okinawan independence. So for them, for Okinawa to be, like, maybe a politically separate entity from Japan again, again, mm-hmm. probably to serve American interests, you know, mm-hmm. to be honest, and um, so they encouraged the use of Uchinaguchi. But the Okinawans wanted the Americans to go. So, of course, they resisted the use of Uchinaguchi because it was being encouraged by the Americans. Okay. They wanted to be Japanese. So, I would say many young Okinawans wouldn't think of themselves as being bicultural at all, and maybe some would. You know, there's definitely some Okinawan traditions, like cultural traditions that are alive and and well, like a a lot, like karate and the Asa dance and, and things like that. They don't have on mainland Japan, but whether the students would have an awareness that they're, how different they were from mainland Japan or not is another question.
0: To your knowledge, especially since you had the experience of being there, are there other uh, congregational type of places that Uchinaguchi would perhaps, you know, show itself up? Because I, I know a lot of the research studies with the ethnographic researchers and anthropology, anthropology studies that they refer a lot to congregational places like temples, schools, martial right. arts studios, <clears throat> places sure. like that. Where, where, was there any place else that you might find that, you know, besides the martial arts dojo, that Uchi Naguchi may show up?
1: Definitely. Um, there's the Sanshin Club or Sanshin um, Practitioners. And, and basically, Sanshin is the, the uh, Okinawan version of the shamisen, which is a three-stringed banjo. Oh. It looks kind of like a lute. It's got that, you may have seen it with a snake skin sort of body often, mm-hmm. and 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 people play this and they sing. And in that those circles, in the, the um, Sanjin community, Uchinaguchi is quite encouraged, and people do greet each other in Uchinaguchi. The songs, kind of, are
0: they in Uchinaguchi Uchi, yeah, Uchi as well?
1: And the songs are in Uchinaguchi as well.
0: Huh. Now, so, uh, yeah. out, of, out of curiosity, those... Because that is, that's an amazing, because a lot of times we do uh, correlate the corporeal experiences of the martial arts with dance, theater, because it's an embodied knowledge. And when you're referring to this uh, singing and playing of the music, uh, in the Okinawan culture, do their songs usually, do they sometimes just tell stories?
1: I'm I'm guessing they would. I honestly don't know enough about the songs myself to tell you for sure. But I'm, I'm guessing they would just because it seems to be a thing that songs do. And and certainly the National Theatre as well, that's all in Uchinaguchi. And, oh, okay. and I've heard that sometimes they get it wrong and the people who are fluent in Uchinaguchi are kind of, you know, thinking their thoughts and uh, <laughs> that's all subtitled in Japanese as well. Oh, because, really? Yeah. Well,
0: well yeah. as far as the, the people sitting out there complaining about pronunciation, they do that to me all the time as well because I'm from North Carolina. So I, you know, I always use the excuse that if I can go to the website and look up pronunciation and it's got 17 different pronunciations for something like Uchinaguchi, for example, right. I'll take my best stab at it and just as long as we are fulfilling communication. But I think that's amazing that the theater itself in in, in Okinawas are, are, are in Uchi Uchinaguchi.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a special theater just for that kind of uh, performance. And uh, yeah, so that that's all that's Uchinaguchi, but the actual actors and, and actresses may not actually speak it, mm. you know? So they probably don't. It's usually only people above a certain age. And they're kind of like some people that still speak Uchinaguchi at a, a very fluent level, but they tend to be older. They tend to be maybe not the firstborn son. Mm-hmm. But maybe the youngest son who got to spend time with grandma or they were raised by their grandparents. So, of course, their grandparents are going to speak to them in Uchinaguchi, and, and then that's it's, you know, it, it works really well that way. But but it's just kind of like getting to be a smaller and smaller minority of younger people who can speak it fluently. Hmm. And then, of course, there, there is a problem with the older people, it, you know, you. If you ever have the experience of, like, like you're saying with your pronunciation, it's it's not very encouraging for you to learn the language if people are always going, "Oh, your pronunciation is terrible," yeah. or you know, it, it's not going to motivate you the way, <laughs> you know. So, so it's the same with um, with Uchinaguchi. Is is the older people have to, you know, allow for some kind of linguistic change, and they have to. in in a in a sense like kind of take what they can get like not Mm -hmm. not that you should settle but for low standards but that you know you have to accept that people are trying their their best and it might not be perfect because they don't have a lot of opportunity to uh, use it or speak it
0: well you know that's a per that that right there speaks a lot to the martial arts too because i you know when i'm teaching in my martial arts and for me it's always about the effort and that the effort is performance will come. You know, it's the effort that, like you said in the very beginning, if you just show up and start the work, then performance will will get there, but you've got to make that effort in the beginning.
1: Yeah, and, and that's absolutely true, you know, for, for academics as well. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd have presentations to do and I'd have no idea, like absolutely no. I, I'd, I'd know, okay, I kind of want to do something on this theme, but there'd be no good ideas about how to start it or anything. Mm. But I found, just like, you know, it, training, you might have a lot of days that are very mediocre, but if you just put in the time, if you just sit there in front of the computer, <clears throat> if you just practice a language or study it, then eventually you'll get good results. It's just, you know, how long will it take, that's all. Yeah,
0: yeah that's right, <laughs> and that's where the patience clicks in. Uh, one, uh, another question I have is in regards to, and I know we're coming up close to about 45, 50 minutes, so I won't keep oh, you no too worries. much longer, but uh, how would you describe the dojos in Okinawa as compared to say dojos you may have visited in Canada, America, or Japan, what was there a cultural difference as far as the attitude or how you were accepted or you know, anything along those lines that you recall
1: um, I think the first thing is it's interesting how similar the environments are like how much how much of the culture they're able to carry over from Okinawa or Japan into <clears throat> a dojo space in uh, anywhere in the world, so physically, I, I have some pictures I've collected, and you can see the resemblance is really striking. You can't tell, you, given you know, a picture of a dojo is that in Okinawa or is it in Canada? Oh. Sometimes you can just tell by the size. Like, oh, that's too big to be Okinawa. Okay.
0: Okay, so they were but, smaller dojos.
1: Yeah, because uh, you know, buildings and spaces just tend to be smaller in in Okinawa, but culturally um that's really a hard one i mean i, I find it uh it's a very japanese like space it's it depends of course on how many actual people from japan or okinawa you you have practicing with you that that mm. does a lot but <clears throat> as far as something can be okinawan or japanese without actual japanese people in it mm. a, a lot of the dojos that i've seen abroad have done like a really excellent job and The techniques that they're using um, the way they count all of these things are Like very reminiscent of things they're doing in Japan and Okinawa and one of the interesting Things it's almost like a test like okay. How much are they replicating it? Well? We're still doing stuff that they did in the 40s or 50s in Japan. We're still doing those things in Canada Hmm. so um, for example, you can say something like sensei nitaiste rei, which is like, you know, bow to the honorable sensei. But apparently this language, which I just took for granted, I was just repeating it, you know, because that's what you do. Um, my, my professor in Okinawa said, oh, that's really like, that's like imperialistic sounding uh, language from this very warlike time, and we don't use that anymore. Huh. And, and the same with the Japanese national anthem. I lived in Japan for eight and a half years, I never once heard the anthem. I went to all kinds of school assemblies, they never sang their national anthem. But my kids' Japanese school in Vancouver, I heard the anthem at least twice now. So it's kind of like, you know, you you take a culture and it kind of gets dispersed and there's little pocket communities here and there and it's kind of like they change in their own way.
0: Hmm. So
1: as far as acceptance goes, I, I found... The acceptance is, is really high, like it's really good all, all the way, you know, all the way around Okinawa, it's really pretty excellent, especially for, you know, I'm a woman, I'm dealing with a lot of older Japanese men, and mm-hmm. they don't seem to really care that, I'm, <laughs> that okay. I'm a woman, and and talking to, or a foreign woman, they don't even really care about that. Um, that, so the unifier is the martial arts and the practice. Mm.
0: That's the, that's what I was that's what I was hoping for is that the martial arts was the was the focus and not the person there is that we're we're here as a family to practice our martial arts.
1: That's right, and and you get that um you know one of the sheets that's not in the in the presentation what I think it's not in there it's uh, basically uh we're you know you're all a family it's the martial arts global family and and I have an article for you I can send it to you. Um, it's about how uh, martial arts is promotes a practice of peace, because you've got all these people from, you know, lots of different environments, and they're primed to hate each other based on, you know, political problems between their countries or differences in language or religion. They've got their deadly martial arts skills, right? They can, mm-hmm. they don't even, they don't need any weapons here, mm-hmm. you know, they and they, they've got the. They've got the martial arts goods, and they've got reasons to not get along, but they do. They all do, partly because they have to, you know. But but it is that martial arts that's bringing them together. And and often there's, most of the time, there's not even any animosity. They it, Those political differences don't matter. Wow.
0: If uh, someone was going to start and using something like the Shurite, nahite, or uh, another form of the Okinawa martial arts, do you think it would actually be uh, possible for someone, let's say, of an Okinawan background, you know, their second or third generation uh, Canadian, but their you know, grandparents were from Okinawa, for example, right? right? And They were trying to, you know, find their cultural roots a little bit. Is that mm-hmm. it, it, having the language involved in their martial arts uh, could actually help them identify a little bit more about where they came from?
1: Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. If if they could, I mean, that would be, again, something from a long time ago, maybe even from, you know, from their grandparents' time. Mm. Um, and and if you're Japanese, unlike, you know, people who are not Japanese, who have not grown up in the culture, um, they you can kind of take up martial arts as a hobby, and then maybe you do it for so long, and then you quit or something. But for japanese people it seems like it's a road that's really serious and you don't undertake it lightly and once you get on that road it's like a serious business mm-hmm. so it would be interesting to see how that person was going to approach it mm. you know especially being involved with their their family's roots and everything it, it's got another layer of pretty meaningful um stuff and uh, on many levels mm-hmm. uh, involved with that. well
0: tell me if somebody wanted to find you how would they find
1: you um, the name of the page is Uchinaguchi and Okinawan Martial Arts. Okay. So it's Uchinaguchi with the U C H I N A A G U C H I.
0: Okay. And I yeah. have links to it at Kung Fu Podcast, so I'll make sure that they can find it. Or is there any other social media? Are you on Twitter or anything like that? Or is the Facebook page the only one?
1: The Facebook is the only one. I'd I'd like to have a website and like you've mentioned at the very beginning, I would absolutely love to, and I'm thinking about sort of how to do this, I'd like to have a website where you have a video component to go with each of the terms so Mm -hmm. that, you know, I could go to these karate masters and film them demonstrating the move and then people could see the word, they could hear the word, they could see the motion associated with it and then maybe see the word in a couple of um, sample sentences as well.
0: So if I was able to round up somebody who would do a set of shirite form, you might be able to take the video or perhaps we could work on it together and put the names in the Uchi naguchi to the movement in their kata. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I mean I can I can probably I can get the shurite people, I mean the more the the merrier for sure. That the thing would be the website hosting. If I, mm-hmm. you know, if I could have my um, my druthers, I'd uh, ask the University of the Ryukyus to host it because they're the the only national university in Okinawa. So it would kind of be appropriate that they hosted it, perhaps along with, you know, some other institution. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it would it would definitely it would be accessed by a lot of people around the world. I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I'll, you you rest assured that uh, Kung Fu Podcast will have uh, either links to it or excerpts from it I will work with you any way uh, we can
1: that, that would be excellent because I, I mean even just a, a website you know a pre-video website just to have the um, the various articles and things have some kind of a space for, for people who don't use Facebook right. you know it, right. it would be good yeah
0: well then consider, consider some of the links and resources that you're going to send me are links to it. I'll, I will download them. I'll put them on my server and so that uh, visitors to Kung Fu Podcast can uh, go to this webpage and find those links and just, and find you and your work. Before we get ready to go, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: Um- just basically uh, to encourage people to to keep at it with whatever art they're practicing and to to experiment with other arts as well and Mm to, you know, if they're doing Okinawan karate to consider using Uchinaguchi terminology or asking especially asking their teachers in Okinawa about the Okinawan terms because that interest is what's going to motivate the teachers there to use it more.
0: Yeah, well, that would be... Uh, That'd be great. Is there anything you'd like to ask me?
1: Oh, uh, how long have you been doing uh, the Kung Fu podcast? I did a bit of research, but not that much. Uh, I couldn't, no time.
0: Well, I started Kung Fu podcast about three years ago and it's a, uh, podcasting is a, 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 it was a challenge. What it takes to put one together and to make it all come together. It's really helped me get introduced to some really fine folks. Uh, around the world who are involved in martial arts for various reasons. Uh, researchers like Dr. Ben Juckins, who's uh, just fantastic guy, Paul Bowman, who's over in the UK, uh, Ian Abernathy, who's, you know, a, a practitioner and
1: uh, yeah,
0: uh, just a, a big supporter of Kung Fu podcasts And thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you uh, for inviting me. This has been really great. This is actually my first podcast about this particular research. So um, it's, Hopefully, an exciting step in the in the right direction. And my I did receive a grant from the Foundation uh, for Endangered Languages in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I part of that grant money is supposed to go towards sending physical copies of the handbook. It's an in progress handbook, but I can send copies to people who want them.
0: Yeah. So, okay.
1: Yeah, well, just let me know about that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, count count me on that list, and then uh, we'll sure. have some others. And uh, well, thank you.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much. All right.
0: I learned so many things during that interview and during the editing process because I got to re listen to it again. But since the interview and before this publication, Samantha sent me an email and she says, Thank you very much for the interview on Friday. I'm not really sure if I covered everything. But it was a pleasure to talk with you about the martial arts in Uchinaguchi. She said that she'd also like to add, My research on Uchinaguchi in Okinawa martial arts was sponsored by MEXT, which is the acronym for Japanese Ministry of Education, Culture, Sports, Science, and Technology. And her research is continuing to be sponsored by the Foundation of Endangered Languages. Then she writes, quote, as you mentioned in your podcast with Ian Abernathy, there are always drivers with one's martial arts practice or other pursuits, and one of my drivers was quite literally Kaki Nohana Kaisan of Shirinkai Shorin Ryu Karate. He independently wanted to create an Uchi Naguchi martial arts lexicon, and when I started to train with him and told him of my research he arranged most of my interviews with other Okinawan martial artists and often actually drove me to the interview sites or hosted the interviews in his dojo. The In Progress Okinawan Karate and Kabuto Handbook is a result of these interviews and is freely available through this link, quote. The link will be over at KungFuPodcast.com forward slash 123 as well as links to her Facebook page and other materials. She also said that the Okinawan Karate and Kabudo Handbook is available in Italian and Portuguese, with French and other languages in the works. She goes on to write, The handbook is not only my research, but a collaborative effort between Uchi Naguchi speaking martial artist teachers and even non martial arts practitioners. We worked on the Uchi Naguchi, Japanese and English sentences together. And the Uchi-Naguchi in Japanese was typically proofread by around six different people to make sure it was correct. There are actually six separate Ryukian languages, each with many very different dialects. Uchi-Naguchi has the largest number of speakers and is on the main island of Okinawa. The work on the handbook is probably a subject for another day, but to avoid a host of problems... I use shibai kutuba, which is the kind of uchinaguchi used by traditional Okinawan theater groups who traveled throughout Okinawa and needed to be understood wherever they performed. And then she finishes by saying, You asked me about the culture shock going to Okinawa, but the only culture shock I can think of is coming back to Canada. I would like for you to go out and search her Facebook page is called Uchi Naguchi. You'll pop right up and like her page. Now, one of the things that came up for me later, which was a question about Funakoshi. He was born November 10th, 1868 in Shuri, Okinawa, which by that I'm assuming that he spoke Uchi Naguchi or some dialect thereof it, and not Japanese. And these questions... Are totally for my curiosity. Maybe I'll get to dig into them later. Or if one of you are listening and you know the answers to this, I'd love to hear from you. But even on this program, we have had what was described as interpretations of his work, his written work, which that really triggered my question. What were they interpreting? We just heard Professor May describe that Uchi Naguchi didn't have a written language. And when it was developed, it was developed both out of Chinese characters and Japanese characters. Now, I think it's very easy for all of us to accept the fact that Funakoshi was not only an incredibly hard worker in his life and in his martial arts, but he had to speak one of the dialects of Uchi Noguchi in order to be taught. And if that was his first language, which didn't have a written counterpart was many of his initial writings both in this combination hybrid form of both Chinese and Japanese characters. I believe it's also safe to say that we could all get on board with the fact that being beyond a hard worker, Funakoshi had to be bilingual, articulate, and apparently worked just as hard in becoming educated before the rest of the Okinawan people were being required to change their languages. Since his first publication was in 1922, I was just curious of what language that he wrote that in. I'm going to assume it was mostly Japanese, but is it possible that it was part of that hybrid language? And if so, how do you interpret that without knowing Uchi Naguchi and knowing how they were pulling stuff together? But again, that's a curiosity question, and it more or less just speaks to the foresight that Funakoshi had as well. As I bring this to a close, Here's a list of the downloads that will be available on the webpage at KungFuPodcast.com forward slash 123. A 21-page e-book titled, A Martial Arts Perspective on Using Uchi-Naguchi in Okinawan Karate and Kabuto. And I have both the English and Japanese translations. The next article, which I really encourage you to look at, is Practicing Peace that you heard Professor May mention. The International Okinawan Martial Arts Community. As a community of practice, that is part of a 35-page journal ebook. The next download available to you is the International Review of Ryukian and Okinawan Studies Journal, The Feasibility of Uchinaguchi in Okinawan Karate and Kabuto Classes. Then, of course, the Okinawan Karate and Kabuto Handbook, which is a 45-page ebook, And lastly, a 29-page presentation. Professor Samantha May's work titled Embodied Language Revitalization, Linking Uchi Naguchi, Okinawan Martial Arts, and Well-Being. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. I really do hope that you enjoy this podcast for many years to come. It is one of the most educational podcasts that I think I've done since I've started Kung Fu Podcast because I learned so many things in an area that I had no idea existed. The history, the tie-ins, the politics, war, cultures. There was so much in it. And then how are we trying to keep it alive? But it all kind of boils down to this. You are a martial artist. I'm a martial artist. Maybe we come from different places and do different things, but we all still work. And remember that almost all martial arts that we have ever found or discovered came because somebody was being suppressed, being put down, and they were trying to find a way to protect themselves and to keep themselves safe and their families safe. Well, today, I want you to go out there and practice, and practice with the idea and the concepts that many have come before us. And even though we may come from different places, we all want to stay safe Keep your community safe. Keep yourself safe. Take care, and I'll be talking with you again next week.